0: All right, Caroline, welcome back to the Impossible Network. Thank you so much. It's so fun
1: to be with you guys again.
0: Yeah, it's been a while. When, when did we meet up at Neuhaus?
1: That is asking too much of my pandemic brain. I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> it feels like it was just yesterday and it was an epic time ago.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: Was it in May? No.
0: May or June? Yeah, definitely that long ago.
1: It was warm. Yeah. I do remember it was warm. Yeah. So yeah, that's. It's a possibility. Almost a year ago.
0: Okay. uh, Well, let's jump in. This is going to be one of the, uh, a a slightly shorter one, but we'd like to get your perspective around everything that's been happening with you and the work you're doing and your TED talk in relation and your whole perspective on the world and everything you've been talking about in the context of of COVID-19. So
1: just a small feat,
0: just a small, yeah, (laughs) for half an hour. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm going to start. I I used this quote in the last interview, and it was um, really to reflect on the times that we're living through. And there's a quote from a Hemingway book called The Sovereign Man, where these two characters say to each other, how did you go bankrupt? Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said, gradually, and then suddenly. And when people talk about this, they describe it as everything happens slowly, then all at once. Now, it does sort of feel like we're living in one of those all at once moments where our economic, our social, our political uh, structures are finally gone bankrupt and we're having to deal with the consequences. Um, I don't know if that's fair, um, but it could be also in these times an inflection point where real change happens, a pivot point in society. So when I was reading and listening to your recent work and your recent videos, you had a post where you said, and I'm just going to quote, the parallels between what we need to do to navigate the coronavirus pandemic and AI are endless. Here, here we are at the moment where the disruptions I have anticipated have been accelerated, not by the exponential curve of technology, but by the exponential curve of the virus. Let us not mince words, the future will never be the same. Our economic, social, political, mental and human order has forever been changed and it will necessarily need to. Now, great, wonderful. That's absolutely spot on in relation to what I was uh, discussing in the last couple of uh, interviews. Could you maybe share your perspective on that change cycle, the change cycle that we are most, more than likely in at the moment?
1: Yeah. So I want to make a couple points here. The first is the change that I have been predicting, right? But you know that the work that I do with Hello Humanity is to help leaders prepare for the disruptions that are going to happen as a result of exponential technologies, such as AI, robotics, genomics, sequences, and so on. And what we're doing is bringing in visionary leaders who can help reshape and reimagine what the future of economies need to look like, what the future of societies need to look like, and so on. And here we are, right? Here we are at this moment, where the parallels are so profound. COVID is asking us to reimagine the economy, to reprioritize human well-being, to reimagine what the future work really looks like. And if you look at what AI is asking us to do, just AI, reimagine the economy, reprioritize human well-being, and reimagine what the future work looks like, right? So same same issues, same challenges just accelerated like the the horizon lens has gone from five to ten years to Mm -hmm. today so we need to start embracing this pandemic for as horrendous as it as it is because it is putting real human lives in danger but we need to start embracing it as a possibility, as a moment of inflection, as you said, as a moment to not contract or react or try to weather the storm, but as a moment to reimagine. Because this isn't the only time we're going to need to reimagine. We need to prepare ourselves for this and make uh, make of ourselves more resilient economically, financially, politically, socially, because the next quote-unquote pandemic is AI. And this is our chance. We need to be looking at it from that kind of long-term lens. And that's what I've been saying. So that's what I'm I'm sitting here talking about. And, you know, you were asking about where are we in the change cycle? Mm-hmm.
0: Because I've heard a few people say we're just at the um, end of the beginning.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. So, and, you know, everybody has their own change models. Everyone has their own change views. I can tell you from having worked with organizations that are dealing with large-scale disruption and undergoing change, change is never linear. It's always cyclical, but there are certain phases that you go through. So you can imagine this kind of like circular path upwards and forwards. And I would say we were, and maybe, and you can check for yourself, but I would say that we were in the in the moment that I call the big squeeze, which is this idea of, holy cow, what just happened? And you like, grasp onto everything and you try to keep everything as steady as possible and the status quo going as fast as as well as you can right that is never sufficient in a moment of disruption Mm -hmm. that is like you know hack it down the hatches and try to make it through but it doesn't it doesn't allow you to survive where i think we're moving past that we're in week seven some parts of the country longer of a lockdown we are now entering the next phase which is the reckoning. The reckoning, which is this, like, oh, this is a new reality that we have to face. And with that, we have to grieve what's lost and we have to allow ourselves to grieve what's lost. We have to manage a trauma and we have to allow ourselves to manage a trauma. And we have to cr- start creating space for us to feel all feelings, including trauma, but other feelings as well. And what I'm saying is every leadership model will tell you that leadership is about leading emotion. Do not be mistaken. Leadership is always about leading emotion. And if you are going to be a leader for the future, if you're going to be a visionary leader, you're going to understand that the best time for you to reimagine the future is happening right now in this big reckoning, because nothing has been fully formed yet. No future has been fully defined yet. And we have to allow our feelings of discomfort guide us in a new reimagination. It's the feelings of discomfort that guide us. So you can't skim over it. You can't jump over it because they will play out for you in the future very, very negatively. Instead, take your people with you, allow for this time for people to really lean into those emotions. Now, this is something that in our society, we're terrible at. We do not like feeling bad emotions. It's something that I hope that we'll get much better at. There is a tremendous amount of insight that can come from fear, for example. I've been leading on the side. I've been leading morning meditations every morning because uh, one of the things that brings me the most joy is to teach meditation, the skills of managing your mental and emotional load. And we've been talking about how fear, if you ask fear what it means and you just sit with that inquiry, what you discover is that fear wants to belong in love. So how do, you, how do we as leaders help our people feel the fear, navigate through that fear, and then know that they belong in love, that no matter what happens, that they will be cared for, that they will be supported, that whether it's you as an organization or us as a community or whoever you are as a leader, a civic leader, a business leader, whatever kind of leader you are, that your responsibility is to help people feel their belonging. Or anxiety, same thing. If you ask anxiety what it wants, it wants certainty. Well, it can't get certainty. So then how can you help move past certainty? Well, you get comfortable with the unknown. How can you become comfortable with the unknown? You create a trusting relationship with each other. And it comes back and back again to what is a singular repetitive action that over time with constancy, with dependency, I can can, um, demonstrate to my people that will engender that trust so that they'll never have to feel that kind of anxiety again. It all goes back to very basic human emotions.
0: That's quite a radical transformation for many leaders to have to go through at this stage, particularly when everyone's virtual. I mean, I know that you've got your, your client base, you've probably been preparing them for this moment for some time, but for those that haven't and that are having to reimagine the, the way that they lead, it's taking people out, certainly out of their comfort zones and require them to make some pretty radical transformations.
1: So you might remember from our last conversation, I don't know if I mentioned it actually, uh, I'm working with Brene Brown, her daily lead work. Uh-huh. And part of the reason why I'm doing that in the context of this is that the future needs us to have courageous leaders who are willing to reimagine. And the degree of your daringness the degree to which you're going to be reimagining is directly proportional to the degree of your courage. And guess what? Your degree of courage is directly proportional to your degree of being willing to be vulnerable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is
1: no courage without vulnerability. So I'm.
0: It's funny that that came up in a that came up on a couple of other conversations around right. we've been having about vulnerability has to be seen and as strength, uh, particularly particularly with men. I mean, I think it's with Brene, It's been talking about this for a long time. Most men see vulnerability as a weakness.
1: Right. So I can address it uh, with you the same way that Brene addresses it with it, which is, um, you know, when she went to speak to the special forces, she asked, can you give me an example of courage that did not require vulnerability? And vulnerability is described as an instance where there's uncertainty, risk and emotional exposure. And it all fell silent until one commander stood up and said, no, ma'am. There is no courage without vulnerability. And that's what's so exciting for me, actually, in this moment, if I have to be honest with you, because we, the gig is up, Uh guys, the gig is up. Look at me. I'm like, my hair hasn't been cut in weeks. I'm in my home. My kids are probably yelling in the background. I can't, I can't tell what's happening. I can see you. You're talking about your Wi-Fi connection. Uncertain, you know, like we're human. We keep pretending that we're not, but we're human. And this moment is such a beautiful moment of this sensitive, tender recognition that we have to take care of each other as human beings, not as worker bees, not as high-performance machines, not as means to an end, but as human beings. And it always comes back to that. So you might remember the work that I'm doing on the future of work is When machines can take over the labor of our jobs, right, when they can outperform us intellectually, outperform us physically, then what's left for us to do? Well, it's to enhance the things that only humans can do. And again, it comes back to social emotional intelligence, creativity, compassion, those things that only humans can do. And this is the time for so many reasons. There's so many layers of reasons why this is the time.
0: So you must feel quite, buoyed by the the way that things have changed just so dramatically, we've we've seen evidence that universal basic income might not be within uh, beyond reach, um, regardless of political divide. And as you say, when you're reimagining what work looks like, we're getting a taster now of how things could be. And I think you know, every, I think the thing. Certainly, everyone I know in my network are, are experiencing is this real joy of discovery in pause of new things or rediscovering things that they'd forgotten or spending time learning a new craft or a new skill. And the social connectivity, albeit virtual, is great. That's offset, obviously, by the, the the downside and the feeling of the cabin fever and the breaking of the old routines. But you must be seeing this opportunity for you to help accelerate the work you've been doing in, in the future uh, in the past sorry but you and so just to build on something I also heard you talk about which is your five acceler- accelerating exponential shifts are coming so maybe you could just expand on what you see those shifts as being and obviously we're in the midst of one
1: well Two things there. One, one is where I left off, which is the change cycle we're in, right? Yeah. So we're the reckoning, the next is the reimagining, then there's going to be the big new experiment, and so on and so forth. But the five shifts that I'm seeing, I think everyone can touch. The first is that economically, we have to reimagine how we operate. This idea of our GDP is tied into our returns has to change. This idea of a company's value is in shareholder value has to change. This idea that, for example, politics, the government can send out subsidies to support small businesses for the time being is absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and necessary. But it's not sustainable because right now we have this big loss of employment due to COVID. In the next five to 10 years, we're going to have another big, massive loss of employment due to AI and robotics. Our funds are going to deplete. So we've got to reimagine. So the first is, how in the world, uh, you know, not how in the world, but how could we, how might we reimagine the future of economy? How do we make it so that it's far more resilient and far more distributed and far less um, tied into our, you know, Value is profit mentality. That's, that's lost. And here's why it's real. Because we have hinged our human worth on work. We have hinged our human welfare on income. and we're, So many millions of us are tied into an income in order to pay for meals on our, on our children's table. There is something extraordinarily fragile about that that we're now touching. So we cannot continue... And with this mentality. So we need to start thinking realistically and very, very um, dramatically about what the future of economy looks like. That's the first uh, force. And I I think there's some experiments that have already happened, um, like donut-shaped economies that we can look into, circular circular economies, triple bottom line ideas. Those things need to start taking a much bigger prevalence in our day-to-day conversations. And it's an urgent call, right? This is an urgent call. We can't just go back to the way it was before because we're gonna be, first of all, suffering from the depletion to the economy that we've experienced, but we are fragile. We're seeing it, we're touching it now. So that's an urgent call for visionary leadership. The second is this acceleration that we're gonna see in the adoption and evolution of AI robotics and genomics. Why? Well, humans are fallible. You know, like here we are in the middle of a pandemic, and major factories, major industries that are sort of the sustenance of our society, have had to close or reduce their um, their productivity because humans are being asked to separate from one another. Well, guess what? Doesn't need to separate from one another one another because they don't carry the potential of a virus. Robots,
0: yeah, machines, robots, yeah.
1: and machines. So it's natural that companies are going to want to adopt mechanisms that are going to allow them to safeguard themselves from this pandemic. Cause we know this isn't the only pandemic. This is the first that we've seen in a century, but it's very likely that we'll have more in more rapid succession. And what I'm saying is it won't be another century. Mm-hmm. So that now begs a different begs the question of how in the world are we going to adopt these robots and AI in a way that's moral and ethical? We already know that there's a ton of work done around the world around how do we even make sure that our AI systems are ethically correct. This rapid intention to put them into place puts a squeeze into our needing to face that challenge. So we need leaders who are going to really understand that their job right now is to do the moral and ethical work for the future. And what that means is they have to know what their moral and ethical values are. And I would put to you, many of us haven't done that work. And by the way, moral and ethics aren't just a singular person's idea. It is a societal person's idea. And because of the global implications of these kinds of um, machines, we really ought to be making it a global idea.
0: That is a little bit of a challenge in the, in the current political environment. And the fact that the, the two powers really driving this forward are, is the U.S. and China. And without that unified agreement, um, and as you say, if if ethics and morals are culturally driven, we know that China's uh, have a different code of ethics than, let's say, the the West. So that is clearly is a challenge. And obviously with lockdown, um, there isn't really the opportunity to bring these leaders together around a a collective understanding.
1: I would would say yes, and I would Mm -hmm. give you a different vantage point. I think we're in a much better position to come up with global ethical conduct now than we were before. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we have profoundly been humbled. Mm, true. Yeah. We have been profoundly humbled. So I think we need to use the moment of humbleness, not not you know, dive back to a stoicness or you know the sense of infallacy that has been guiding us. You know, we are we are being confronted our own mortality yeah. we're being confronted with our own interdependencies you know our infinite interconnection with each other in in such a way that i'm i hope we will never be able to deny it again and from that humbleness i think there's going to be a chance for us to have wiser conversations so that's the second force do you want me to go on with the others please yeah
0: yeah definitely yeah, yeah.
1: so more ethical and moral leadership becomes a second key in this equation. And the third one is that we're going to see a large scale recalibration, right? So we've seen global supply chains fall to the knees because of this pandemic. Uh And it's natural that what's going to happen is that companies and uh, governments alike are going to try to take any single point of failure out of the system. That means that we're going to see much more centralized economies right your life your daily life is going to be conducted closer to your home your businesses are going to be decentralized so you might look at um you know if you're an industry you might be looking at reshoring manufacturing jobs if you are a farmer you might be looking at um you know how do we how do we grow foods more locally so we're not so dependent on global Mm -hmm. supply chains vertical farming will be probably far wide more widely adopted and so on and so forth. We're going to see this sort of like shift from this global, global interconnected economy to a more localized one. And so what that means for leadership is that we're going to have to transform from this efficiency mindset, right? Which is kind of leaning into this global economy to a resilient mindset, to one that has no single point of failure, that has some redundancies, but also, by the way, resiliency in your in your industry, in your company, isn't just because of redundancies and, you know, solid systemic thinking, business development, but it's also resiliency because people that you have on board know how to be resilient. And why I'm saying that is because this is one mega shift, you know, this is one dramatic disruption, but we're living in exponential times. We're living in accelerating times. Disruptions are going to happen far more frequently with far more force. So we better get comfortable and secure with how to handle these kinds of disruptions. So leading for resiliency is going to become the next key pillar.
0: So we could we could see this as uh, just being our training ground, our preparation.
1: Totally. Oh yeah, this is absolutely a training ground for sure. I've made those statements a few times on, on social media. The fourth one I actually hope is going to be almost a great rebirth of emphasis on human well-being there's no question that we're going through global trauma right now and there's no question that we cannot divide mental and emotional well-being from our capacities to you know uh, bounce back from this situation so that has to get on our leader's agenda that has to become part of our priorities. and the way that i'm thinking about it is really this is a time for all of us to lead, to learn how to lead for humanity, to know what it takes for you to be more human, to know what other people's need are around feeling like a whole human and put that on your agenda because you're going to be dealing with, as I said, more and more accelerating change. You're going to have to resource from, you're going to have to bounce back from this one and you're going to have to keep learning to bounce back. So learning to deal with the wellness of human beings becomes uh, a critical ta- critical task. And the last one is a greater emphasis on existential crisis mitigation. You know, we we've been talking about pandemics. No one's ever done anything about it. In fact, we're we're so we have such hubris about ourselves that we thought we were invincible and we took you know funding away from organizations that were meant to deal with potential pandemics. Well, guess what? Pandemics is just one of the existential crises. We might be looking at genomic and nuclear warfare. We might we might be looking at, you know, superintelligence that's frail and uh, inadequate. We might be looking at asteroid collisions and and you haven't
0: even, even mentioned cli- and, and you, even you haven't even mentioned climate.
1: Oh well, that's yeah, on that's the a, list. Yeah. For sure, actually, that's my. I was going to end with that as being my. And let's not forget climate. Yeah. I was going to end with the most important one last because. We keep just burying our heads in the sand. And I think we're entering an era where leaders have to start um, grasping and grappling and wrestling with these existential questions. It's not for someone else to deal with. It's for all of us to deal with. And these have to become part of your leadership, leadership agenda. So there you have it. There's yeah. five immediate things that we need to reckon with. And I think that inform directly how we shape our leadership.
0: You said that it's leaders that will do the moral work of this generation. Who do you think these leaders will be? Cuz uh, there seems to be a dearth of leadership at the moment. And I'm not just talking political or I'm um, I'm thinking leadership can come from anywhere.
1: It feels like it doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, are you are you seeing um, new emergent leaders that uh, can be part of that rallying cry and the the let's say the nose cone of change?
1: Yeah, I can tell you of a personal experience that I had. And this is very, it was profound for me, maybe because of the context that I live in. But I was watching the press conference that Jacinda Ardern did. Uh, She's the prime minister of New Zealand. She did the press conference around the COVID preparations and how she envisioned the future of New Zealand and how she went about it. And here's what she did, okay? Not only was she human, Not only was she refreshingly honest, not only was she clear about the stages that, you know, level one to level four COVID preparations for the country. I don't know if you've watched it, but if you haven't, I would highly recommend you do. But she reminded the New Zealanders what it meant to be a good human. She reminded them that they are the kinds of people who can call each other and check in on on, um, the elders. That they're the kind of people who can find act of kindness day in and day out to to preserve themselves in this um, pandemic. It it was just so refreshing for me to hear, if I'm honest with you, probably because of the context that I live in where the leadership that I'm seeing day to day tends to be more disparaging towards people who don't think like them, uh, who tends to be more divisive instead of collective. But, we're seeing almost as a result of the lack of it, this refreshing experience of someone who does hold that ethical and moral compass for your people. Jacinda's is one of them. There's many more. There's, you know, the way that I define leader isn't someone who is in charge or has a title, but anyone who sees themselves as responsible for the well being of others. Mm-hmm. Period. Sorry. Angela Merkel did the same, um, did a speech last week. She was addressing her nation. Uh, If you haven't seen it, it's really quite wonderful. Um, The way she talked to her people, she made everyone responsible, she did not put anyone against one another like someone else does. But it's like let's all do this together for the well-being of us all. That was the ultimate. It was really touching. I mean, I I, if I, I will send it to you afterwards in an email. Yeah, watch it, and you will see how much there's
0: comparison between the two. Well, we can maybe share it in the show notes, Bettina.
1: You yeah. might you might do. Yeah. I, I wrote an article years ago on mindful leadership. You know, again, as I told you, I, I teach meditation uh, because it's something that I feel is important for us to learn as a skill. Um. And the one thing I said, I started, which was vision. the l- true leaders lead with a vision. They never lead with um, a, a goal. They lead with a vision. That yeah. means that they paint a picture of a future possibility. They call on our better angels. They see the goodness and they call on that goodness and they reflect it back over and over and over again because we're human and we forget and we get stuck in these negative thinking cycles. So we need leaders to do the moral work of knowing what is being called of me right now. Can I move through my trauma skillfully so that I can help others move through their trauma skillfully? Can I allow myself to imba- imagine a completely different possibility for a future? Can I paint that vision in, a, you know, in such a multicolored way? that people can believe in that vision? And can I act in a way over and over and over again to earn the trust of the people who I'm asking to follow me? And that's really the end of it. You know, Somebody asked me, I was at the World Economic Forum a while back, and they were talking about facial recognition. And what do I think about facial recognition? Should we use it in New York City, for example? And by the way, this is very prevalent because we're looking at the potential of using AI to see if we have a fever or potentially these bracelets and so on that can tell us who we've been in contact with, et cetera. And the implications of that are profound, right? Because we're looking at huge implications in privacy. We're looking at all kinds of layers of issues. So the the issues are the same, right? Facial recognition or observe where everybody is connecting, how they're connecting and so on. And my answer to them, and I still stand behind it, my answer to them is, I don't see a problem. I personally don't see a problem with facial recognition if I had trust Mm -hmm. in how it was being used. And the problem is we don't have trust. And that's like, in some ways, that becomes the number one agenda if you're a political leader, uh, an organizational leader, a societal leader, a leader of a nonprofit, is how do you regain trust? how do you build trust with your, with your contingencies? And, you know, and I don't know if that, if that resonates with you at all, but for me, part of the reason why there's a a lack of trust has been because we've been looking at the world through a utilitarian utilitarian lens. What can you do for me? How can I squeeze as much as I can out of you? I'm just playing you this way so that I can get that. You know, there's this endlessly self-elevating practice that's happening And as opposed to looking at how do we enhance the well-being of the larger whole as opposed to just my well-being. And we're not seeing enough of that.
0: So rather than get drawn down a rabbit hole of what uh, leadership, around leadership and in the political environment, a couple of conversations we've been having um, has been around the leadership in organizations coming out of this. And you've already reflected on that. But I'm just wondering one of the things that we've uh, that certainly we're seeing as a pattern emerging is that the stigma of mental health seems to be for fall- dropping, and that more there's more acceptance understanding and appreciation of that it's okay not to be okay particularly in this in this time and as leaders come back into work and wherever that reimagination is and the way that you described it. Do you think that the, the visionary leaders will be ones that prioritise the mental strength and fortitude and health of their people as a means to through which they uh, strengthen their organisations? Because we've always talked about human capital and if we can improve the resiliency, resiliency of people, whether they be working remotely or coming into offices or whatever that future work is and the roles that they play... They have to be at their optimal capacity to be creative, to be curious, to be compassionate. Do you think they'll be we'll start to see an evolution in the way that we talk about, I don't call it HR, but maybe um there'll may be, be a new terminology that emerges in terms of how leaders I don't want to say optimize, but to improve the performance and the productivity, it sounds too mechanical. But really, that um, empowering the people within the organisations to, as you've said, to rediscover their humanity.
1: So, I um, I want to answer that question slightly differently sure. because the lens that you've given it um, is accurate and correct, and it's still very much about how can I maximise my people to. Uh, Deliver the highest amount of profit.
0: Yeah, uh, which is the old world. Yeah.
1: We need to change that conversation. We need to change that conversation. We are faced with the reality that we are living in an interconnected world. We've always known it, we've never felt it, and now we feel it. If you are a business, you must go back into the real world post COVID, recognizing that your responsibility isn't only to your profits, it's to your people, it's to your planet, and it's to the society in which you operate. I just posted a post on how we ought to be shifting from return on investment to return on the world. If you take a moment to recognize that the only reason that you take a moment to recognize that business is a privilege, it's not something that you've created out of your own mind. It's something that you've created out of your mind with the opportunities that are given to you because society has afforded you educated people, because the environment has afforded you the um, raw material that you need to make your products and services with. Because of all the history of people who've contributed to where we are in society today and so on, all the knowledge that has been gained, you're not alone, you're interdependent to that. And so we have a responsibility again, to ethical and moral leadership, to recognize that interdependency and to operate as actors of the whole system, not just as my system. So yes, the responsibility of wellness and mental health resides on the people with whom you spend the most amount of time of your life with, which tends to be people with that you work with. Of course, it's not just their responsibility, it's your own as well. So that becomes part of our responsibility as leaders is to create an environment where people can feel and receive the supports that they need for mental and, and uh, emotional well-being. But the lens shouldn't be because I can gain more profit from that. The lens should be because it's my responsibility as an uh, as an ethical actor in this whole bigger sphere of responsibility of um, of society. That's the first level. The second layer, the second answer to that question is, if you listen to my TED Talk, I try to make the case that the future of work is human. That if we are facing a crisis of meaning because computers and machines and robots can do the physical and emotional and I'm sorry, physical and mental labor of humans, then we need to give humans a new purpose. And the purpose that we give humans in the future of work is to do the emotional labor that machines can't do. And by the way, the emotional labor includes the mental, uh, the um, ethical and moral reasoning work. So if you want people to make good ethical and moral decisions, you need to to have a good mental and emotional barometer. Um, You need to make sure that they're well they can't make good decisions if they're not well. You can't make a good decision if, if you're not well. Something I also wrote recently. Like, your responsibility in this moment as a leader is to take care of your own well-being because you yourself are not going to make good decisions at this moment. If you are in the big squeeze, your decisions are reactive, contractive. If you can get yourself past the big squeeze and take care of your own well-being, then you can move into a space of much wider reasoning um, that helps you become the visionary leader that you aspire to be and respond appropriately to this moment.
0: Brilliant answer. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's because it helps because honestly, we're having so many different conversations from different perspectives. So it's really good to, to embrace and appreciate it through the lens that you've, you've given it. And because I think it's very, it's challenging for a lot of people to leave behind where the world we've come from. And while everyone talks about the new normal, I think a lot of people do think we're going to go back into just the the organizations and the organizational environments that we've been working in before. And therefore, it defaults to, well, what do we have to change to improve the way things were rather than, as you're saying, it's a reimagination.
1: Well, I spent a lot of time, I was one of the very first to talk about design thinking, you know, back before it became a huge thing that everybody talks about. Me, not being me, but working with a team of people who are kind of renegades in this space. And um, and I can give your listeners three things that maybe they can do to make sure that the good reimaginers or that they're as as disruptive as they can be. The first is have a ceremony for all the things that are gone. Like honor the past. Take a moment to really Uh, You know, like demark this moment as to say, this is now over. Those things are now ended. This has to belong to our past. We cannot take that into our future. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, take all the rules that we have abided by without question and do something that is called a revolution. Take the rule and flip it. Okay, revolt like do a revolution on it. What if that wasn't the rule? Then what? Okay, and the third is the world is uh, was supposed to be more beautiful than this. We all have a longing for a much more beautiful world. Why are we not creating it? So ask people to picture the most beautiful world, and then what is it that we must do, right? If we can revolve, you know, do a revolution on those rules and we can paint a picture of this future, then how do we build it? What it how are we going to build it? There's no one else that's going to build it but us. So ask yourself, the, be- the world is supposed to be much more beautiful than it is. It's supposed to be so much more beautiful. So how can we make that happen? Do we have to abide by the rules of work, for example? Does work look like a five-day, seven-day work week? Do we have to earn an income? I mean, I'm just being provocative, yeah. but do mm-hmm. we have to earn an income in order for societies to flourish, in order for human beings to have, I don't know, a draw to contribute? Um, do we have is that real? I mean, we made this up. Mm-hmm. We made all of it up. We made economy up. We made money up. We made business up. We made law, you know, law up. We made the government up. We made democracy up. This is a chance for us to make something else up. And I think it's with that kind of, almost playfulness that we have to explore this new experiment let's not get bogged down by you know it's never going to work actually we need to start playing let's be experimental
0: that's a brilliant way of summing it up and finishing this i think everyone's got their homework to do (laughs) (laughs) to start that grand reimagination so if people want to follow you and they want to continue this conversation with you We'll put your details in the show notes, but it's, uh, I think people can find you at Hello Humanity. That's right. On Instagram and and probably on all the other social medias as well.
1: Yeah. You can follow me personally on Caroline Chubb or Hello Humanity on all the channels.
0: All right. Okay, Caroline. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. (laughs) Take care, you guys. Stay well.
0: If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina Michele and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative and seek out serendipity. See you next time.